Propaniacs. Cotton Hill has vanished. In his absence, and in the absence of the Cadillac car, assistant manager Hank Hill leads a brave band of alley dwellers on a secret mission to Sin City, where an old group of sisters may have a clue to Cotton's whereabouts. Whereabouts? Who talks like that? Welcome, listeners, to Propaniacs, a King of the Hill podcast. I'm your host, Melton McMainerberry, and today I'll be leading this group of tourists off the bus and into Season 3, Episode 5, Next of Shin. But before we get into the episode itself, let me remind you that this episode is brought to you by Dairy King. Eat here, get gas. Let's first talk about some general themes of this episode. This is really a sequel to the previous episode, Pregnant Pause. We see more infertility issues as Hank and Peggy continue to struggle with infertility in their efforts to have another child. And we see even more complicated family dynamics that go along with that. Related to that, we see a lot of envy in this episode, a lot of insecurity, two sides of the same coin. And this episode has lots of callbacks to previous episodes that are a lot of fun, especially Hank's unmentionable problem. The episode has a lot in common with that episode, beyond even those explicit callbacks. So this episode itself starts with a cold open at Arlen Auto Parts, where Peggy is telling complete strangers about her and Hank's efforts to have children. This calls back to the pilot, where Peggy told Twig Boy, unsolicited, about Hank's narrow urethra, and also several scenes in Hank's unmentionable problem, where people both knew about and openly discussed Hank's medical condition, much to his chagrin. Native Texan Daisy Durndall noted at that time that this type of gossip is just part of the culture in small-town Texas, and maybe that helps explain why Hank doesn't bat an eye this time around. If anything, he embraces it by literally embracing this crying baby of a complete stranger. This is very out of character for Hank, and it shouldn't be overlooked, because it shows how all-in and gung-ho Hank is about having another child now. Even the full diaper doesn't change his mind. He just resourcefully grabs that pine-scented air freshener and puts it to use. Now, the use of tools part of that is all Hank, but intimacy with perfect strangers... Who is this guy, and what has he done with Hank Hill? And that is our setup for Act 1. There is initially a lot of just cluelessness in this act, as we see a lot of the expert versus rogue tension carry over from the previous episode. But then, unlike what we saw in that episode, Pregnant Pause, we'll see that now an enthusiastic, committed Hank will be willing to listen to the experts, at least to a point. So what's going to be the source of conflict that gets set up in this first act? You guessed it, it's Cotton. He and Dee Dee show up at the Hill's house with a surprise that rocks this insular world. So as Act 1 starts off, listeners, is there something here or am I overthinking what I'm seeing? It wouldn't be the first time, would it? The cup that Peggy holds up when she says, fill cup to line, isn't the liquid therein perfectly clear? It really doesn't look like urine, but just water, right? Is Peggy filling this cup with water from the faucet? Is that the joke? That is believable for an often clueless Peggy. See Peggy's headache and Peggy's turtle song for all the evidence you need there. But I don't know. Somehow it doesn't feel like that joke would fit with this episode. I think we'll see that Peggy is savvy and strong in this episode. Not clueless. And introducing faulty pregnancy tests into this plot 
would create uncertainty about Hank and Peggy's infertility issues that the rest of the episode really wouldn't support. But that sure looked like water and not urine, right? Maybe just a simple mistake at the coloring stage. It makes you wonder. But the important takeaway from this scene is that we find out that Hank, at least initially, is still reluctant to see an expert about his infertility issues. That's a holdover from the independent rogue mentality, that mistrust of scientific authority that featured prominently in Pregnant Paws. Well, as this plays out, as Peggy and Nancy are sitting at the Gribble's kitchen table, speaking of spurious science, boy, Nancy Gribble really doesn't know what she's talking about, does she? And actually, Peggy does come off as pretty clueless here, but she fails to sniff out Nancy's own cluelessness regarding MRIs and radar, at least fully. By the way, also, hat tip to the underappreciated but always stellar voice acting of Ashley Gardner as Nancy Gribble in this episode. She's great. Listen to the way she delivers the line, it's the same thing, next time you watch this episode, and appreciate with me the personality that Ashley Gardner infuses this character with. But back at the Hills house, Peggy's medical cluelessness continues with Peggy's declaration that she has been sitting on her eggs for 40 years. No, Peggy is not in her 50s, so methinks she's missing a life step here. She may need to look ahead to next season and watch the episode Isle 8A. Pro tip. Anyway, the next thing we know, Hank and Peggy are consulting presumably bona fide experts at Fertility Associates. Now, the very names on the door set up Hank's discomfort here with major shades of Hank's unmentionable problem. Remember the physician's assistant, I believe she was, in that episode? How she had kind of an Eastern European look that let Hank know she wasn't from around here? There's a similar thing going on here with these three doctors' names on the door. It's a classic comedy triple with a two-element theme broken by a third-element punchline. The names are Dr. James Benton. Sounds like a normal American. To Hank listeners, not to me. (laughs) We have Dr. Lawrence Rogers, another regular American, if you will. And finally, Dr. Rayav Budamanyar, an Indian-sounding name that pushes right up against Hank's ethnic prejudices. I mean, what's next, right? Dutch beer? And naturally, it's Dr. Budamanyar that ends up seeing Hank. And Dr. Budamanyar's foreign ethnicity just tugs harder at that expert versus rogue tension we've been thinking about. It's interesting what's going on here, right? So Peggy has essentially convinced, or maybe more like pressured Hank into seeing this expert through her brief dialogue in the previous scene, which only really had two points, right? One, that advances in medical technology could help make treatments less uncomfortable for Hank. And that's true enough, but The statement that Peggy makes there was really based on the misinformation she received, trusted, and passed on from a clueless Nancy. But two, Peggy's other point was that her biological clock is ticking. That's also likely true for Peggy as a 40-year-old woman, but the way she phrased the protest was certainly biologically questionable, as we said. So, Hank, who is naturally wired not to trust medical experts because of his well-documented-on-this-podcast resistance to anything resembling intimacy and because of his cotton and culturally-influenced sense of independent pride, that same Hank is now doing just that based on Peggy's medically untrustworthy urging. Nice, King of the Hill. In other words, exactly when 
Hank should probably have doubled down on his resistance because, frankly, it didn't sound like Peggy knew what she was talking about. He flew right past all that and capitulated. Did you follow all that? Good. Because I didn't. And it's Hank who turns out to be the clueless one when he completely misunderstands how Dr. Budamanyur will obtain this sperm sample that he requires. Notice that Peggy face palms at Hank's cluelessness. That feels more like the Peggy of the rest of this episode. She knows what's up. In fact, she's the one who has to tell Hank what's going on. And Hank was clueless about Peggy's cluelessness, about Nancy's cluelessness, about medical and meteorological technology. So there is cluelessness to go around in this episode, true enough, but the first person to get what's going on here isn't Hank, but Peggy. Well, anyway... Back in Dr. Budamanyur's office, I like the second callback to the pilot here as Peggy tells Hank that she knows he gave 110 million percent effort on his failed sperm test. (laughs) But the important thing here is that Dr. Budamanyur gives Hank concrete medical advice, a recommendation. And note that it's similar to one of the recommendations that we saw Hank explicitly reject in the flashback in the previous episode, the one about switching from briefs to boxers. Dr. Budamanyur now recommends that Hank, quote, lower the temperature in his pants and, son of a gun, if we don't see him wearing short pants and sitting on ice in the alley in the next scene. And then wearing short pants to work. Seriously, who is this guy? What has he done with Hank Hill, right? Hank has swallowed his pride as that action-based love he has for Peggy that we talked about in the previous episode has won out internally for him. And now that he's committed to listening to the experts, the proof's in the pudding. He is doing it. He's acting out this advice. He's being a doer of the word and not a hearer only, if you will. Boy. This first act really is similar to Hank's unmentionable problem, isn't it? The unsolicited medical advice from friends and neighbors and strangers. Hank's pushing Peggy away when her speech gets too intimate and too emotional when they're in the bedroom. And the dejected look coming out of the bathroom after another swing and miss. This time it's Peggy, not Hank, as it was in Hank's unmentionable problem. But despite what Peggy says, Hank is again the one who feels like the failure here. That's very much what we were seeing with his medical issues in Hank's unmentionable problem. So, as we near the end of Act 1, it feels like we found our conflict in this episode. Just like Hank's unmentionable problem, it's going to be Hank's battle to overcome a medical condition that is at least partly caused by his chronic uptightness, while the attempts to help by everyone around him only make it worse. Right? That's our conflict. Not so fast, because now is when the doorbell rings, and the first act ends with the bombshell that while Hank has been trying unsuccessfully to make a baby with his wife, his 75-year-old father has done just that with his wife, and Cotton's nonchalant way of talking about it is our first clue that Cotton's success, if you will, in the area of Hank's failure was quite effortless, the very opposite of Hank's experience. So now we move on to Act 2, and we're going to see now that the conflict, the true conflict, is established with Cotton and Dee Dee's presence in Dee Dee's pregnant state. We're going to now see how Hank and Peggy deal with Dee Dee's pregnancy 
and Bobby gets into the mix, we're going to see how Bobby deals also with the threat of no longer being an only child. And then finally, how Cotton deals with imminent fatherhood, or at least a second round. So we start off with Cotton unknowingly rubbing his superiority in the fertility department in the face of a Hank who was already feeling like a failure. So Cotton ratchets up Hank's feelings of inferiority and throws more of the emphasis on the masculine, macho angle of this struggle. I mean, let's face it, to a man like Hank, especially with a father like Cotton, infertility isn't going to be felt so much as a medical problem, but as a masculine one. Again, I'm not saying I think this way, but to Hank, failure in this area is going to strike at the very heart of what Hank would see as his most masculine of roles, that of fathering children. So if he wasn't already, Cotton's presence with a pregnant wife effectively emasculates Hank here. And Peggy has to deal with this too, motherhood being such a core piece of Peggy's identity. No matter whose quote-unquote fault it is, so to speak, she now has to dine with a woman who is roughly her age, who finds herself unwittingly and probably unwillingly visibly pregnant. And the fact that she is showing so much continues to rub salt in the womb for Peggy, because even if Cotton weren't constantly running his mouth about the situation, there's no way for Peggy not to see it, literally right in front of her. And the animation and voice acting are both excellent, as Peggy's unspoken envy is written all over her expression and in her inflection. So, the kitchen table is set, so to speak, as Hank and Peggy's already difficult fertility struggles are only made worse by Cotton and Dee Dee's opposite experience. By the way, maybe I spoke too soon when I recently realized, or thought I had realized, that the dining room versus kitchen table thing on King of the Hill is simply a matter of which daily meal is being eaten. This looks like dinner. The meal itself, it's dark outside... And all five of them are crammed around that little kitchen table like Peggy went out of her way not to use the dining room table. Maybe a little telltale symptom of Peggy's envy of Dee Dee? Or maybe the mystery of the tables is yet unsolved. Maybe both. I can't let it go, folks. I gotta keep looking. But back to the episode, the Hank's unmentionable problem parallels continue in the alley as Bill instantly and thoughtlessly spills the beans about Hank's infertility to Cotton. Just in case we thought Hank was going to be able to keep it from him and not make things ten times worse by letting him know the cat is out of the bag. And Cotton's crude posture as he talks about how wide his uridi is pretty much telegraphs Hank's worst fear that Cotton is not exactly going to treat this struggle he's having with a tender fatherly touch. By the way, wouldn't you love to know how the animators perfected Cotton's shinless pelvic thrust in this scene? I would, and I can't believe I just said that phrase. I gotta say, I'm on record on this podcast as not being much of a Cotton fan, but I love him in this episode. His loud Ross Perot crassness feels like just what this episode needs. As great as Hank's unmentionable problem was, we needed something like this to give this episode its own voice. The slow, quiet pace is now officially gone because Cotton is simply unignorable. Hank, who would much, much, much rather be left alone on this issue, and most others, has no choice but to react to a Cotton who essentially defies Hank to ignore him. 
And Cotton's presence must be what pushes Hank to remove the physician-recommended ice in his pants and turn to Earl, the guitar guy's home remedy of... Peaches. Over at Bibbs and Cribs, where we should acknowledge that Hank and Peggy seem to be doing a really nice gesture for Cotton and Deedee, strained niceness though it may be, we're reminded again of how Peggy has to deal with something like her failure, or at least lack of social status that she would otherwise have due to Hank's failure. We see this in the saleswoman who incorrectly assumes Peggy is pregnant, and it's a good reminder of how just as Deedee's visible pregnancy is unignorable. As a woman, Peggy has less ability to avoid this topic around people who know about their efforts to conceive, which apparently is everyone in Arlen at this point, than Hank does. It's like a traditional couple, and Hank and Peggy are certainly that, whom people are expecting to get engaged soon, right? Nothing much changes for the man, but the woman has to deal with constant, not-so-furtive examinations of her left ring finger to see what is or isn't on it at that point. But that's Hank and Peggy. What about Cotton, right? He's been so nonchalant, even boastful about having a baby so far in this episode, you wonder why he isn't feeling more pressure. Is it just his chauvinism taking for granted that Dee Dee will do all the work? Or is he in a bit of denial himself here? The episode answers that question when the full weight of what's happening does hit Cotton. That part's predictable enough, but I love how the episode does it, with this World War II flashback that throws Cotton into shell shock. I love when King of the Hill gives us these surrealistic dream sequences. That's another callback, by the way, to Hank's unmentionable problem. I'm C. Everett Coop. And now, passing your algebra homework. You know, this bar Cotton runs off to, we see this great bond that Cotton and Bobby have. Not only do they physically resemble each other, Take that, Bill's the father, people. But always impressionable Bobby mimics his grandfather's demeanor here, pounding bottles of root beer and commiserating about this baby that Cotton isn't ready for. There's a nice callback here to the season two episode, The Final Shinsult, with Cotton's mention of the Andrews sisters as his and Dee's aphrodisiac on the occasion of conception. Presumably Cotton and Dee's song, Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anyone Else But Me. It's a good reminder that as bizarre and disturbing as that relationship is, there is a bona fide connection between Cotton and Dee Dee that I guess we could even call love. But it's tragic how Cotton in this scene sympathizes with Hank and Peggy's fertility struggles when they aren't there to hear him do it. Maybe it's the four Alamos talking, but this is a far cry from Cotton's normal hyper-masculine bragging, as we saw in the alley. There's real humanity here from Cotton, but the effect is lost on a blindsided Bobby, who's now going to have to deal with this situation himself. So we see that in the next scene. I don't know where Hank got this magnet idea from. (laughs) Kind of doubt it was the doctor, but who knows? Maybe he's going back to going rogue and just winging it at this point. He made it up himself. I I don't know. Unfortunately, we'll never know. But there's another great callback in this scene, this time to the season two episode, Texas City Twister, with this packet of far more megalofuel filters than any one person could possibly ever need. This episode's really full of those callbacks, and I don't know if there's a specific purpose there. I really didn't see how that might tie to the theme, but they're a lot of fun anyway. Well, finally, in this scene, we 
had found out already in the previous scene that Bobby wasn't going to take the news of a potential sibling well. But what this scene shows us is how Hank's knowledge of Bobby's struggles with this news piles more wood on the fire of Hank's humiliation at the very moment when he has to delay processing all this to find his runaway father and his Cadillac car. So naturally, Hank doesn't process all of this, and instead, on this car ride, blindsides Peggy with the news that he's throwing in the towel on their efforts to conceive. And the conflict between Hank and Cotton boils over now into Hank's relationship with Peggy. But there's nice grounding of this dramatic moment as Hank uses the accordion-style sunshade to put a barrier between him and Peggy. Beautiful. There's also, I want to point out, a continuing nice touch in this episode and throughout this season so far as Luann's hair kind of gradually, awkwardly grows back. That's kind of fun to watch. We see that in this episode. It's definitely in like an awkward stage. But anyway, here's where the episode itself takes, for me, an unexpected and maybe even unwelcome turn. I mean, Las Vegas? You know, I have to admit, I did not remember at all until I was preparing for this episode that this King of the Hill episode took us to Las Vegas. But let's get to that in Act 3. For now, Act 2 has left Hank, Peggy, Bobby, and Dee Dee all struggling with Hank and Peggy's unsuccessful efforts to conceive, Cotton and Dee Dee's uber-successful baby-making, and immediately, Cotton's absence. So we'll look now for our Act 3 resolution. To that end, Hank, Bill, and Dale will make a trip to Las Vegas to find Cotton, which again, I totally did not remember. The final act actually takes place almost entirely in Las Vegas. So, Cotton and Hank find resolution, or something like that, and all the other characters' struggles and conflicts, hmm, let's see how that plays out. Now, as Hank gets ready to leave to go to Las Vegas, we have to start with one of my obsessions on this podcast. The dining room and kitchen table thing is nothing compared to my obsession with the location of... Did you see this one coming, long-time listeners? Arlen. Let's talk about some Arlen geography. Okay. The most we can say for sure about Arlen is that it's in East Texas. We know that from the green trees and grass that are always there versus the more desert-like environment of West Texas. That's confirmed by Daisy when we've talked about this in previous episodes. And you can definitely look at some satellite imagery if you want to confirm that for yourself. Texas certainly gets less green as you move west. So, okay. Even if we place Arlen as far north and west as it could possibly be in the Panhandle near Amarillo, it's still 12 hours minimum from Arlen to Las Vegas. I'm just not buying this, folks. Even allowing for some geographical liberties with the location of Arlen, which we know King of the Hill takes a lot, one of those being that we have to ignore the fact that the closer Arlen is to Amarillo, the further away it is from Houston, eight hours to be exact, and Houston is where Cotton lives, at least sometimes. Even allowing for all that and just Ignoring those little inconsistencies, I still can't suspend disbelief enough to get Cotton to Las Vegas in the Cadillac car and the guys out there to find him in the single day that this episode presents. Because remember, Cotton called from Las Vegas, so he had already gotten there before the guys took off. It's still daylight when they leave, so when did Cotton drive to Vegas? And Hank's statement that if he drives all night... He can be in Vegas by morning, almost explains it, but he doesn't get to Vegas by morning. 
He, in fact, gets to Vegas well before morning. It's still pitch dark when he gets there, and it stays that way for several hours while he and the guys look for cotton. I I just don't see how this timeline works, even if you give every allowance you possibly can for Arlen geography. So, to me, this trip feels less like the typical realism of King of the Hill and more like an excuse to get the characters to Las Vegas, and I do find that a bit disappointing. And now... The car ride is over, and we get to see Hank and the guys interacting with Las Vegas, or Las Vegas happening to them. And it's funny, I get it, but yeah, I'd say it's a little contrived. Maybe I'd appreciate this more if I'd ever been to Vegas myself, but I'm not sure Vegas is any more my scene than it is Hank's. And also, here the writers make the Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree callback that we talked about earlier explicit, where it was only implicit before, and my heart broke a little. You don't have to spoon feed us, King of the Hill. We got it before. Hey, keep your comments about this podcast to yourself. I hear you out there. All right, two things I did like here, though, in the scene with the Andrews sisters. One, the callback that was again, this episode has a lot of those to Shins of the Father with the picture Hank carries around of Cotton on that literal white horse he rode into Bobby's birthday party on in that episode. It's a rental. Also, the way the Andrews sisters are drawn. I mean, as viewers, we certainly were going to suspect these sisters were actually men in drag just because of the setting. But they are somehow drawn in a way that confirms that fact for us very quickly so that we have all the more time to have a good laugh at a fish out of the water, Hank. You know, then we have this searching montage, more fish out of water stuff. You know, yeah, yeah, okay. But finally, they land at this casino, and as Hank has this epiphany about his dad's whereabouts, the guy hitting the jackpot on the slot machine in the background, in an episode and an act that I was more into, I'd probably call that a nice touch, I'll confess, but here, to me, it feels a bit heavy-handed. But in the end, I guess Hank does seem to help guide his dad back to Dee Dee with this ruse about Terry Jerry, I I guess. But what about Hank's um, genital envy of Cotton? Well, Cotton does call Hank out on basically letting his pride cause him to give up when his wife needs him. Somehow, Cotton ends up on the moral high ground here. Maybe it's that chair that's hooked onto the side of the craps table. And Cotton says something that, coming from a macho man like him, is really touching. He admits that Hank is the better father. And there it is. The conflict that's at the center of this episode, Hank's role as a father and his ability to be a father compared with Cotton's, is... What has felt under attack, at least to him, and Cotton simply concedes Hank's victory in that area. It's backhanded, don't get me wrong, but for Cotton, this is almost like telling Hank he loves him. It's pretty big. Okay, but I admit I don't quite know what to make of Cotton's gesture of faking a tantrum after losing at craps. Was he empathizing with Hank here? Uh, Was he making fun of him? (laughs) Maybe he was doing his version of claiming a mulligan in this low-stakes game so that he could accept his responsibility in the high-stakes game of raising this new baby. Your guess, as usual, is as good as mine. And that is how this episode ends. We're left to assume resolution between Cotton and Dee Dee, which I do think is pretty well implied. But with Hank and Peggy, it's much less clear. To say nothing of Bobby, who is pulling in the opposite direction on all this, I guess we'll have to tune in next time and see what happens as what appears to be a rare bona fide story arc in King of the Hill continues. So what do we think of this episode? Yeah, it's tough, y'all. TV shows do this sometimes. I thought King of the Hill did it in the season two episode, The Man Who Shot Kane Skredeberg, where the episode goes off the rails a bit in the third act. 
I could see why that would happen. I mean, Act 3 just seems like it would be the most difficult one to write. Act 1, set the conflict up? Sure. Act 2, develop and escalate the conflict? Roger Wilco. But Act 3 is where you've got to dig your way out, and quickly in a 22-minute show. And the fact is, sometimes you've written yourself into a corner. And it does seem to me like that happened here in this episode, and that the Vegas trip was contrived in order to spice up an otherwise somewhat unsatisfying ending. I mean, Cotton's and Hank's conflict was resolved pretty convincingly and movingly, but the rest are really just left hanging. And they never even make it back the 12 hours minimum to Arlen to let us know what happened there. So, for me, this was two brilliant acts and one weak one. And I do mean brilliant. This one was on the way to being an instant classic for me. Cotton's presence was perfect. Hank's discomfort, a la Hank's unmentionable problem, was great. Lots of complex conflict. This was good stuff. So let's call it two acts of eight goober smooches and one act of three. All right, let's do the math. That averages out to 19 divided by three is a little north of six. So let's call it an uneven six, but a six nonetheless. Six the hard way. Now, let's drive the truck and the Cadillac car home and park them until next time, listeners, when we'll get infected with Peggy's pageant fever. Until then, keep your short pants cool and your checkerboards upright. See you next time. <laughs>